passage today is from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. church. G-O-A-T. What does that spell? Goat. All right. All right. We've got some former uh, spelling bee champions uh, here this morning. Good. Okay. Uh, But what does it stand for? What does it stand for? Does anyone know that acronym? Greatest of all time. That's right. Greatest of all time. I have no interest in talking about the Canfields goats this morning, uh, but we're going to talk about the acronym, right? That goat, the greatest of all time. Maybe you've heard this. And in the last few years, there's been a lot of talk, mainly in the sports world, about who is the goat? Who is the greatest of all time? And so in basketball, it's always centered around the argument around Michael Jordan, right? We all know Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time, but then who Whoever kind of is the up-and-coming star, whether it was Kobe or LeBron, there's always the talk of who is the greatest of all time? Who is the GOAT? Or more recently, the conversation has then been in the NFL, and it pains me to say this, but the GOAT conversation has come up then with Tom Brady, which that just, that hurts, that hurts to say. Yeah, 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 all right, okay. Uh, As he keeps winning Super Bowls and we in Indiana have to watch Peyton do commercials, uh, there's been this talk about, you know, whether or not Tom Brady is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And so I was sort of interested as to when this term first started to be used. And I'm sure many of you are as well. And so I'll share with you, okay? So it most likely traces back uh, to Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali's wife in 1992 started an incorporation called GOAT. Inc. Okay, greatest of all time, incorporated. All right. And then the phrase, though, after Muhammad Ali and his wife started that incorporation, didn't really start getting more popular until the early 2000s when LL Cool J released an album in the year 2000 called Goat, Greatest of All Time. I've been told if you want to listen to that album that Kevin still has a copy. Um, <laughs> Okay, so if you were looking for useless information this morning, there it is, all right? There's that for you. Hopefully the rest of it will be useful. Uh, but stick with me, okay? Because while many, of us, while many of us don't aspire to be the greatest of all time, either in the NBA or in the NFL or in making albums, you do desire to be great. You do. We all desire greatness. We have a desire to be great, 
We have a desire to be a great mom. We have a desire to be a great dad. We have a desire to be great at our job or to be great in school. We desire to look great. We desire to feel great. We desire to have great kids. We desire to go to a great church. We desire to live in a great community, right? We desire to be great. And listen, your desire for greatness is not a bad desire. But unfortunately, because of our sin, our desire for greatness has gotten all messed up and we need Jesus to redefine for us what true greatness really looks like. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is where we'll be this morning as we are continuing to preach our way through the gospel according to Mark. And if you have one of the church Bibles that are available in the back, it's page 937. Uh, But it's Mark 9 starting in verse 30. And we are at a point in Mark where Jesus' ministry is coming to a close in Galilee. And he's now turned and he's set his sights on Jerusalem. His eyes are on Jerusalem and the cross that he knows awaits him. And he's trying to prepare his disciples for what's about to take place. Okay, He's already told them once that he's going to have to suffer. He's going to be killed, but three days later he will rise. Okay, That was in chapter 8. And you remember how Peter responded to that? Peter rebuked him and is like, no, Jesus, like we know you're the Messiah. We know that is not how it goes down with the, for the Messiah. And Jesus then strongly rebukes Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus then takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountaintop and reveals to him, reveals to them his glory, right? That he is God in the flesh. It's what no, it's what's known as the Mount of Transfiguration. And on that mountain, both Elijah and Moses appear and they they talk with Jesus about his upcoming death to signify to us and to show us that all the law and all the prophets, they were getting us ready. They were leading us up to Jesus's death and resurrection. And now Jesus, he's preparing his disciples for all that's about to happen to them in Jerusalem. He takes them aside privately to teach them. He's getting them ready. And in our text this morning, he's going to once again, he's going to help them get ready by giving them a prediction, a principle, and a practice. Okay, a prediction a principle, and a practice. I wasn't trying to make it all peas, but that's just kind of how it worked out. I've been hanging out with too many Baptists lately, uh, but I promise we won't have special music and a love offering uh, in a bit, bit, so stick with me, okay? But here's what he's doing, okay? He's, he's with this prediction and with this principle and with us then seeing this practice, how it plays out, he's redefining greatness for us. He's redefining greatness for those 12 disciples that were following after him. He's not going to blast their desire to be great. He's not going to say that our desire to be great is wrong. No, Jesus is going to redefine greatness for us this morning. And he's going to help us pursue true greatness. And so let's pray. Let's ask for his help, and then we'll jump into the text. So pray with me this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word. And God, you are a holy, holy, holy God. You are a great God. And so God, we ask 
that you would help us through your word, that you would redefine greatness for us. And that you would help us pursue you in a way that is is pleasing to you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear what each of us needs to hear this morning. Give us hearts to receive this word. And may it bear fruit in our lives abundantly. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me at Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Okay, a prediction, a principle, and a practice. Here, first we see a prediction. Okay, this is the second of three occasions where Jesus will tell his disciples about his upcoming death and resurrection, but they still don't get it. He's, he's trying to show them that what is about to happen in Jerusalem, it is not outside of the sovereign control of God, but that this has been the plan from the beginning, that God the Father would send God the Son to suffer and die a substitutionary sacrifice so that the people of God might be reconciled to God through the work of Christ. This was always the plan. And Jesus is giving them these words, even in the moment they might not understand, they might not see it, but he's giving them these words now so that after these things happen, they can take comfort in knowing that this was the plan all along. When they get to Jerusalem, it's not that things just start spinning out of control. But how does this prediction redefine greatness for us? Because we said it would be through a prediction, a principle, and a practice that Jesus is going to redefine greatness for us. Well, you see, it is the example of the obedience of Christ that will first help us to redefine greatness. Paul, when writing to the Philippians, he points to the humble obedience of Christ. And he says this in Philippians 2, verse 8, which we'll have up on the screen. Speaking of Jesus, he writes, "...and being found in human form..." He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus humbly obeyed even when it was difficult. How difficult, you ask? To the point of death, difficult. Okay? Now, this is true greatness. Humble obedience, even when it's difficult. Even when it's difficult. It's a lot easier to obey God's word when it's convenient, right? It's a lot easier to obey God's word when it's popular. It's a lot easier to obey God's word when it's politically correct. But true greatness humbly obeys even when it's difficult. People who are pursuing true greatness, they humbly obey even when it hurts. Because listen, church, sometimes you obeying God 
is going to hurt. Sometimes you obeying God is going to hurt your checking account. Sometimes you obeying God is going to hurt your popularity. Sometimes you obeying God is going to hurt your career and your status in society. Sometimes you obeying God's word is going to hurt your relationships. And sometimes it might even lead to physical hurt and death, like many of our brothers and sisters who've been martyred for their faith. But this is true greatness. Humble obedience, even when it's difficult. And if you need an example of this humble obedience, look no further than to the cross. And it is, listen, it is because of Jesus' obedience that now you and I have been enabled and empowered to humbly obey as well. Because before the Spirit applied the work of Christ to our hearts, we didn't even have the ability to obey God. Sure, we could maybe do some good and moral things. We could. We could do good things. We could do moral things. But even those good and moral things weren't done for the glory of God. They were done for our own glory. And so true greatness and true obedience to God was not even possible. But it was because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that now we can be forgiven of the penalty of sin. We can be freed from the power of sin in our lives. And after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and then he sent to his people the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now indwells us and enables us and empowers us to obey. And so it is through the obedience of Christ that now we have been enabled and empowered to humbly obey even when it becomes difficult, even in the difficult times. Jesus is redefining greatness through a prediction, a principle, and a practice. The prediction was him telling his disciples about his death and resurrection. Now, now for the principle, okay? Now for the truth, okay? Because this is, this is important. This is important because we've said that our desire to be great is not necessarily a bad thing. We just need it redefined for us because of our sin. Because you see, what our sin has done in regards to the category of greatness is this. Sin has caused us to want to be known for our greatness, And sin, it's caused not just us to want to be great, but it's caused us to want to be greater than the person next to us. A desire to be great is not a bad thing, but we need Jesus to redefine it because our sin has caused us to want to be known for our greatness, And it has caused us to want to be greater than the person next to us. And both of those things are not of God. Look at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. They are now back in Capernaum, which served as sort of a home base for Jesus and the disciples in Galilee. 
It's where Jesus first called Peter and his brother Andrew. It's where Jesus called James and John. It's where, it's where Jesus called uh, Matthew the tax collector. And so this was a familiar spot for many of them. This was home for some of them. They might have even been in Peter's home at the time. And Jesus asked them, he says, hey, what were you talking about on the way? And the room goes silent. It's like when you call to your kids in the next room, hey, what are you guys doing in there? And everything goes silent, right? You know they're obviously doing something that they shouldn't have been doing, and now they're playing rock, paper, scissors to figure out who's going to take the fall for it, okay? Now, it's not as if Jesus doesn't already know what they were talking about. He knows their hearts, but he asks the question in order to expose what's in their hearts. But they kept silent. And you see, they had been arguing about who was the greatest. The problem wasn't that they desired to be a great disciple. It was in their, in their sin, they desired to be greater than the disciples next to them. And they desired for their greatness to be known. And I know I said Muhammad Ali and LL Cool J maybe first introduced that saying, goat greatest of all time. But listen, this argument is not a new argument. This argument has been in the heart of men and women ever since sin entered into the world. The disciples were arguing about which one of them was the goat, right? Which one of them was the greatest disciple? Jesus just finished telling them about his upcoming death and resurrection, which is sort of a big deal, right? And they are talking about which one of them is the greatest. Jesus has to redefine for them what true greatness is because they are still not getting it. And here he gives a principle. He gives a truth. We've already been given a prediction. Now the principle, now the truth. He's helping us redefine greatness. Verse 35, here it is. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now this goes against the whole, if you ain't first, you're last mentality, right? Jesus says false. He says, if you want to be first, you must be last of all and servant of all. The word servant in the original Greek, it's referring to someone who, who is personally devoted in service. Someone who is voluntarily serving and is personally committed and in this. It's, there's little difference into someone who's serving because they're a slave and someone who's serving because they're voluntarily willing, devoted into this kind of service. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, the way to greatness is to serve, to serve. It's to put everyone else ahead of you and to serve. You see, the kingdoms that we set up say in order to be great, you must be greater than all these people around you. And so step on them, squash them, do whatever you can to exert your greatness over them, to climb the ladder of greatness. And then when you get to the top, make sure everyone knows about it so they can praise your greatness. But church, that's not how greatness works 
in Jesus' kingdom. That's not true greatness. And Jesus, knowing what's in the heart of the disciples, and Jesus, knowing what's in the heart of every man, woman, and child in here this morning, he says that true greatness is obtained by serving even when it feels like you're losing. I'll say it again. True greatness is obtained by serving even when it feels like you are losing. And what I mean by this, and what I mean by that, let me explain that, okay? What I mean by serving, even when it feels like you're losing, is this, okay? It means to serve without seeking the praise. If you're losing in a race, typically you're not the person, like, pumping up the crowd, getting praise for yourself, right? Now, there are some rare instances, like if you lost all your limbs in battle and you're a cancer survivor and you're finishing the Ironman and you've done all these great things, you're going to get an applause even if you're last, okay? But for the most part, in a race, the person losing is not really seeking praise for themselves about how great they are, okay? And so serving, even when it feels like you're losing, means to serve without seeking praise, without trying to exalt yourself. It also means to serve without comparing yourselves to others. Someone who's running a race in the middle of the pack, it's very easy for them to look at who's ahead of them, to look at who's behind them, and kind of compare how they're doing and where they fit in. The person in last is not comparing themselves to anyone else. They're just trying to finish. Serve even when it feels like you're losing. Don't seek praise and exalt yourself and don't compare yourself to others. So listen, to serve even when you feel like you're losing means to serve when no one's praising you and no one's watching you to give you the credit. And that's really difficult to do. When no one praises you and no one gives you credit and when no one even says thank you, it feels like you're losing, right? It feels like you're last. And Jesus says, last of all and servant of all is the way to true greatness. It's this idea that we do not need to seek to exalt ourselves or to proclaim and try to get known our greatness to others. James, the brother of Jesus, he agrees with this as well. And in James 4, verse 10, James writes this. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You don't need to try to exalt yourself. Those pursuing true greatness, they, they do not serve in a way that is seeking to exalt themselves or to get praise from people. Now today is, is Mother's Day. And this isn't specifically a Mother's Day sermon, but we'll try to draw some application from it, okay? Because if you need an example of how to serve, even when it feels like you are losing, look no further than many of the mothers that we have here today or who are in the classrooms this morning. Mothers are great examples of serving, and their serving largely goes unnoticed. And very rarely are they praised for all the ways that they serve. And listen, if mothers were in it just for the praise, 
okay? If mothers were in it just for the praise, Mother's Day has to be the biggest letdown in the universe, right? I mean, think about it. Your mother is someone who has served you in ways that you don't even realize. She has wiped your nose and your butt so many times, you don't even want to know how many times she has, right? This is the person who brought you into the world through agony and pain and tears and screaming through labor and delivery, right? I don't think brunch and a card once a year really like does her service justice. Can we all agree on that, right? If mothers were in it just for the praise, this is a big disappointment this whole day. So listen, moms, don't be disappointed by your families today and maybe their lack of praise or thanks for you for how you've served them. Jesus says that true greatness serves even when it feels like you're losing. And so moms, when you're serving your kids, maybe young kids who are too young to even notice what you're doing, they're too young to even thank you for what you do for them. And when you do it without seeking the praise of others, know that you are living out true greatness. But listen, this isn't just for moms. What about the rest of us? Are we willing to serve even when it goes unnoticed? Are we willing to serve even when it is unthanked and no one will even know it was us? Are we willing to serve even when we know we won't be praised for it? It won't lead to recognition or honor or an award for our service. To serve even when you feel like you're losing, it also means this. It also means to serve without playing the comparison game. When you feel like you're serving isn't getting you ahead of others, it can feel like you're losing, right? And Jesus says, last of all and servant of all is the way to true greatness. So get this, moms. We'll, we'll, we'll just spend a, a little bit more time on you, then we'll, we'll take the attention off you. Don't worry. But this is my Mother's Day gift to you, okay? The gospel leaves no room for the comparison game. The typical understanding of greatness would tell you that you have to size up the mom sitting next to you, or you have to size up the mom that you invited over for a play date, and a typical understanding would say that you are only a great mom if you are greater than that mom next to you. The typical understanding of greatness would tell you that you are only a great mom if your kids hit their developmental markers more than her kids. Or if your kids are better behaved than their kids. Or if your education plan is better than theirs. Or if your work, home, married life, social life balance is better than theirs. And what a killer of community the comparison game is. And not only amongst mo mothers, but amongst all of us. The comparison game sucks the life out of the community that the Holy Spirit is building amongst us. 
It keeps us from really, really loving one another. It keeps us from really being able to rejoice with one another. It keeps us from really rooting one another on and encouraging one another. It keeps us from serving one another and all the other one another's that the Bible commands us. We are kept from those things because we are too distracted trying to be greater than one another. And that is not one of the one another's of the Bible. There are a lot of one another's of the Bible. Be greater than one another is not one of them. That is not from God. But listen, I've got good news. The gospel frees us because the gospel leaves no room for us to seek our own praise. And the gospel leaves no room for the comparison game. If you are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and every God-glorifying great thing you do is because you have been enabled and empowered by the Spirit, then there is no room for you seeking praise for yourself or trying to exalt yourself. If your right standing with God is not because of your, your righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness, and if we've all received different gifts of the Spirit to be stewarded well and used uniquely with our personality and in our context, and if a pot cannot look at a potter and say, why have you made me this way? And if we have all been made fearfully and wonderfully in the image of God, then there is no room left for the comparison game. We have been freed from the desire to be greater than our brother and sister sitting next to us. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is redefining greatness through a prediction, a principle, and a practice. And here's what it looks like to put it into practice. And Cindy, you can go ahead and, and grab him now, too. Look back at Mark 9. I've got everyone's attention now. Mark 9, verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Okay, Jesus loves to use illustrations. And here is one for us. They're in a house, maybe even Peter's house. And he's trying to help redefine greatness for them and what it really looks like. And he takes a child. But listen, you have to understand in that time and in that culture, children under five were not thought of very highly. Now, one of the reasons for that was because, because of lack of good medical care, the infant death rate was so high that many young kids did not live past the age of five, okay? And therefore, families and societies, probably as a defense mechanism, just didn't really get close or connect with kids under five because so many of them did not survive past the age of five. And so there was a much different view of children in that context and in that time than how we view children now. Because how we view children now is, is people either idolize children and worship them as little gods, right? 
Or they go the opposite direction and they view children as a burden to society and as inconveniences. And we believe that they are neither of those things. They are not God. We don't worship them. But they are not burdens or inconveniences either. We believe that they are blessings that have been given to us to be stewarded well. We believe that every human life has value because all human beings are created in the image of God. But listen, at that, at that time, a young child represented the, the lowliest of society. And Jesus calls their attention to a child. And so, Jordy, would you come up here with Daddy? Come here, Beth. All right, we'll see how this goes. So this is Jordan Grant Walker, a.k.a. Jordy, a.k.a. Jordy Boo, a.k.a. The Boo Boo, <laughs> a.k.a. Jordy Foo. That's a new one. But Jordy is two, okay? I couldn't use Jackson. He's already a young man. He's too old, all right? We needed someone under, under five. But Jordy is one of, one of our four boys, and so in this passage, Jesus directs their attention to a child. Because a child represented one who had been marginalized by society. Okay? A, a child represented someone who had no power. Okay? Now, Jordy has muscles. Can you do muscles? Jordy has muscles. But outside of our family and outside of our church family, Jordy does not really have power on his own out in society, okay? A child represented someone that had no status. Now, Jordy has status because he's a walker, and Jordy has status because he's a part of this church family, but out on his own, a young child under five would not have much status in society. And a child under five, they were completely dependent upon someone else for survival. They are. Jordy would not fend very well by himself out in the woods as a test of survival. He is dependent upon us. A young child is really then kind of help, helpless to do anything without the help of a parent or a grandparent. And so therefore, helping or receiving a child does not lead to an immediate reward for the one helping them, right? For example, when I change Jordy's diaper, he never tips me. He never tips, which could be a cool thing to think about. Just, I mean, it would be thoughtful, so think about it, okay? Uh, or, or, or when Britt bathes him, like he doesn't return the favor, now, he might, like someday in our old age, he might return the favor, but right now, he doesn't really return the favor. He's not able to make us food and, and return the favor for, you know, how we fed him. He doesn't pay rent at our house. Okay, so what does this have to do with Jesus redefining greatness for us? You see, true greatness, when it's put into practice, it looks like this. It looks like receiving the marginalized, even when it seems like there will be no reward. How you receive a child will be telling of how obedient and how much of a servant you are because it would seem like there is no immediate reward there. Thank you, Jordy. Can we give, it a, give a hand for Jordy? You go back to Grandma. 
go back to grandma. But listen, Jesus is not just talking about children. And Tim and Joshua, you guys can come on back up as well. Jesus is not just talking about children. He's using an illustration that certainly does include children, but he's saying that true greatness is put into practice not only in receiving children, but in the receiving of all of those who have no power. True greatness is put into practice in receiving all of those who have no status in society. True greatness is put into practice by receiving all of those who are completely dependent upon someone else for survival. This is a call to receive the lowly and the marginalized of society. This is a call to receive the poor, the refugee, the disabled, the homeless, the orphan, and for all of those in our society who could not immediately return the favor. Now listen, it's easy to do something nice for someone who you know can return the favor. It is true greatness to receive and serve and love the one who could never pay you back even in a million years. But we, as suburban, middle-class Christians, we start getting antsy and weird when someone starts talking about the poor and the marginalized, and we have really clever ways of trying to get out of serving the poor. We say things like, well, it was their own laziness or sin that caused them to end up in poverty. We say things like, I don't want to enable their irresponsibility. We say things like, well, in the world's economy, the really poor people are not even in this country, but then we just kind of leave it at that and we don't really pursue the really poor people. And certainly I agree that there are some wise and unwise ways to serve and receive the poor. But in general, I think we say those things to get ourselves out of caring for the poor and receiving the lowly. And when we do this, we are demonstrating that we have forgotten our own poverty. We have forgotten our own poverty. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians in his second letter, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, you were spiritually bankrupt. You were spiritually lazy. You were spiritually irresponsible. And Jesus Christ, though he was rich, though he existed eternally in glory, he humbled himself and he willingly became poor so that we could be welcomed into his glorious splendor. And church, this is just the start of the conversation. But can I ask you to be in prayer about how we can do this in our community. I know we are still a very new church. We've wanted to move slowly. We've not wanted to take on more than we can handle. But I think we need to be praying about how we as individuals and we as our church, we need to be praying about how we are going to receive the marginalized in our community.
How are we going to receive and serve those who won't, we won't see an immediate return or reward from? And I'll close, I'll close with this. Jesus says we need to receive those who it seems like there'll be no reward. But look at this. Look at this. While it seems like there might not be a reward, look at this. There is a reward. Look back at Mark 9 at the very end. Mark 9, verse 37. There is a beautiful reward. Mark 9, for, uh, uh, Mark 9 sorry, verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So to receive those marginalized by our society, to receive a child, to receive the poor, to receive the refugee, to receive those with no power and no status, is to receive the Son and is to receive the Father. To receive the marginalized, it actually does have a reward, and the reward is communion with God. And what a reward that is to enjoy and experience a sweet closeness with the Lord. Taking care of the poor results in a rich fellowship with God. Taking care of the poor results in a rich fellowship with God. And my prayer for us as a church and for us as individuals is that we would pursue true greatness. Not in the way that we think of greatness, but in the way that Jesus redefines greatness. My prayer is that we would be great by being obedient to God's word, even in the difficult times. My prayer is that we would be great by serving, even when it feels like we're losing. Never seeking our own praise and never playing the comparison game. And my prayer is that we would be great by receiving those marginalized by our society. That by caring for the poor, we might enjoy a rich fellowship with God. Let's pray. Father God, I ask right now that you would guard against any lie that would snatch the truth out of our hearts and out of our ears this morning. I ask that for those feeling conviction, Lord, that they would quickly run to you, that they would confess the ways they have pursued greatness apart from you, that they would confess for wanting to be known for their greatness, that they would confess their, their desire to compare themselves to others. And Lord, help us rest and enjoy the truth of the gospel. And may we fully experience and know that the gospel leaves no room for us to seek our own praise. And the gospel leaves no room for us to compare ourselves to one another. 
Lord, guard against any comparison game breaking the community that you're building. Help us receive others as you have received us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.